Take your Bible tonight, please, and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter number 10. 2 Corinthians and chapter number 10. I am well aware that some of you drive a distance. You've been up early. You have all kinds of things going on. And we really appreciate you making the effort to come. And we're encouraging you to encourage others to come and get under the sound of the Word of God. Stand, please, for the reading of the Word of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, 1 and following. Now I, Paul, by myself... Beseech you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am base among you, but being absent and bold towards you, I beseech you that it might, may not be bold when I pres- am present with you that with that confidence wherewith I think to be bold against some which think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. Verse 3 says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. Simply, we walk on two physical feet, but that's not the way we fight. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ and having a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. My text is verse 4. The Bible says the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Bring your message tonight entitled, Smashing Strongholds. Thank you. Be seated, please. Thank you, Lord, for the people who've come. Our friends have joined us. We pray if anybody's come to church but not to Christ, this will be their night. And then to help each one of us to be winners and not losers because of what we hear and obey. In Jesus' name, amen. The Christian life is a warfare that is repeatedly taught us in the Bible. 1 Corinthians 9, 26, I run so not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air. 1 Timothy 1, 18, that thou mightest war a good warfare. Again, chapter 6 and verse 12, fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life. Paul again writes in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 3, endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. In Ephesians chapter 6, there are about eight verses dedicated to to the armor of God. Now, ladies and gentlemen, you do not put on armor to go to a playground. Armor is for a battleground. So let me say again, the Christian life is a warfare. Greatest mistake you'll ever make in all of your life is to think when you get saved, you get in a comfort zone. It is not. It is a combat zone. You have an enemy. First Peter 5, 8, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour. He'll use two things against you. He'll use your own flesh. 1 Peter 2.11, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust that bore against your soul. And he'll use this world's system. 1 John 2.15, love not the world, neither things are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. We are in a daily battle an ultimate war, but thank God you can win. You see, my friend, when you got saved with the grace of God, the Holy Spirit of God came inside of you to glorify Jesus Christ. Now, there's a teaching among the charismatics that is leaked over into independent Baptists that born-again, blood-washed believers can be either possessed by Satan or by a demon. Let me categorically renounce that. It's not taught anywhere in Scripture. Just the opposite is taught. 1 Corinthians 3.16, know you not that you are the temple of God. The Spirit of God dwells in you. 1 Corinthians 6.19, what know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you. Now mark, mark this down. Centuries ago, God 
and Satan parted company. He was booted out of the third heaven. So when Almighty God and the person of the Holy Spirit moves in you, everything unholy is going to move out of you when it comes to the Spirit. However, you can be influenced by thinking that is unscriptural if you choose to do that. Thus, the military metaphor we have tonight, Paul is dealing with strongholds. First, I want you to notice how strongholds are developed. How strongholds are developed. He is assuming they already have them. That's the reason he says you have to cast them down and you have to pull them down. The word stronghold means to be entrenched, a fortress. I call it a carnal castle or a fleshly fortress that takes root in your thought processes, but only with your permission. You see, God says the importance of your mind and tells us that many times in the Bible. Proverbs 4.23, keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Guard your mind. You see, the old boys I used to be raised with would say, you ain't what you think you are, but you are what you think. United States Marine Corps says the warrior's greatest weapon is his mind. Whoever controls your mind controls you. Now, you have been given a filter for your mind called the Word of God. If indeed you will let everything come through this filter, it will filter out corruption so that you will be thinking that which is true. The Bible says in Proverbs 23, 7, for as he thinks in his heart, so is he. Proverbs 24, 9 says the thought of foolishness is sin. Good news, Isaiah 26, 3, thou will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed upon thee for he trust in him. How do you do that? Philippians 4, 8. Finally, brother, whatsoever things are true, honest, just, pure, lovely, of good report, if there be any virtue and any praise, think, concentrate, meditate, reflect on these things. Who is in control of your mind tonight? Whoever controls your mind controls you because the mind is that which controls the rest of your body. Now, it's a very positive thing when you have grown up in a good home. Usually the three things that affect your thoughts are these, your parents, your peers, and propaganda. If you're raised in a good home and your parents teach you truth, that's a plus. If you have right godly friends, that's a plus. If you keep your head out of the sewer of society, as we talked last night, and keep it in the scripture, that is a plus. However, most people that you meet who are saved didn't have that luxury. So they bring a lot of baggage to their salvation experience. But let me say that some people have erroneous ideas even when it comes to salvation. Now I want you to notice what he says in verse 5 that will keep your thought life pure. He says, casting down, throwing down, demolishing imaginations. The word is reasonings. In this context, it is false reasonings, which simply means God is saying, don't let any error in your mind. Don't let evil, don't let that which is anti-God control your thought life. So let's talk for just a minute tonight about the salvation experience. There's a lot of confusion about it. Take your Bible quickly, please, and go to Romans chapter 10 and look at verse 13. Romans 10 and verse 13. This is a very simple understanding of how to get saved with the grace of God. 
The Bible says, for whosoever, that means anybody that wants to be saved can be saved. Whosoever shall call, it does not say join, give, get baptized, turn over a new leaf, but call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You are not born saved. You have to get saved after you're born. And there's a lot of people that are confused on that because they have a religious experience in mind. Okay, preacher, I was baptized as a baby. No, you weren't. No baby in the entire Bible is ever baptized to go to heaven, including you. Well, what happened to me when I was baptized? Well, in the first place, you weren't baptized. All you did was get a wet head. It's not taught anywhere in the Bible. It's a man-made tradition. It is not a God-sent truth. So you have to think right if you're going to get saved. Well, preacher, I have always been saved. No, you've always been a sinner. The Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Now, God wouldn't say, here's what you need to do to get saved if everybody was already saved. So you got to think correctly. You say, well, preacher, what happens when I go to church? Well, if you're a sinner, you're a sinner in church. That's all it is. Billy Sunday said a man is no more a Christian because he walks in church than he is a car because he walks in a garage. Garages don't make cars. You have to be born of the Spirit of God. So when it comes to your salvation, when it comes to knowing for sure you're saved, if you're trusting anything that you have done for Him, then you're not going to heaven. You have to put all of your confidence in what He has done for you. Your work has no value. God's work has the only value. Your work is insignificant. God's work is imperative. It is not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saves us. Now, tonight, if you're sitting here and you're arguing, you are welcome to argue, but you're not arguing with a human being tonight. You're arguing with God. There's only one way to heaven. His name is Jesus Christ, and you come by repentance and faith. I enjoyed preaching in chapel today. Appreciate the honesty of the young people and so many of them that realized what they had was a religious experience, but they had no righteousness in Jesus Christ. But then after you get saved, people have a warped view of God. As a young man came to see me some years ago and he said this, I don't think I'm right with God. Well, he was one of these extremely sensitive conscience people And I knew just by being around him for a few minutes, he was into a works sanctification. Now listen to me carefully. Works don't save you and works don't sanctify you. Could I get an amen? You are not saved by your production. You're saved by the promise and what God has done. So if you're looking to your works to sanctify you, you're not going to be sanctified either. And so I looked at that young man and I said, hey son, what do you think you could do to make God love you more? And he said, I could go to church more, witness more, pray more. I could be more faithful. And I interrupted and I said, wrong. Let's see if you can answer this tonight. What could you do to make God love you more? Those of you who have said nothing, A for the night. God loves you if you take a 15-minute nap or pass out 15 tracks. And if you don't understand that, we won't see you long in church. You'll get into performance instead of promised Christianity, and you'll burn out fast. Now, there's lots of things you can do to please God, but there's nothing you can do to change God's love. Let's see if you can understand this verse. Romans 5, 8. But God committed his love toward us and while we were yet... Hey, folks, get it tonight. God didn't love you because of you to begin with. He loved you and me in spite of me. 
There wasn't anything in us to love. God's love is unconditional. I, uh, before my son ever became a teenager, I told him one day, I said, Ben, get your Bible, your notebook, and a pen. He said, Dad, what are we going to do? I said, we're going to talk. He said, about what? I said, we're going to talk about the birds, the bees, flowers, and the trees, and the cars, and the keys. So follow me. And so we went into a room, and by the way, I believe dads ought to tell their sons the facts of life. Amen. You can say amen or I will. I believe ladies ought to tell their daughters the facts of life. Amen. I don't think you ought to leave it to the pastor, and he doesn't either. You ought to teach your own kids. You certainly ought not to leave it to the public school counselor who needs counseling themselves. And if you don't tell them, Dad, they're going to get it off the street corner, and then you're going to have a mess to correct. And so we sat down, and I said, Son, I want you to read Genesis 1, 27. And so we read, God created man as an image, and the image of God created him, male and female created to them. By the way, three times, created, created, created. you know what it means about evolution? Junk. Nothing. It's impossible. It didn't happen. Thank you very much. So created trumps God, uh, trumps Darwin every time. I, I went into Westminster Abbey. Have you ever been there? You know what's really neat? I went over to David Livingston's tombstone, and I read his life. And I said, I know he didn't see me, but I saluted David Livingston. And I found Darwin's tombstone. You know what I did at Darwin's tombstone? I just stomped all over it. Started to spit, but it didn't want to get thrown out. I promise you Darwin knows better now. Amen. Now look, folks. When you tell your kids, under, help them to understand God created man and woman. Did you ever figure when you were a boy we'd have to say this? There is a man and a woman. It wasn't two men, could I get an amen? amen. It wasn't two women, could I get an amen? amen? And when you think two women make a marriage, you got fruit loops for brains. That's out to lunch. He made a man and a woman. And then... He created a thing called marriage. Everybody say the word marriage. And I said to my son, now, son, read verse 28. He said, it says, Dad, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. I said, there is a man and there's a woman. They're distinctively different. And God said, now I'm going to marry you. Must have been neat not to have pay all those bills for the dates. You just got it the first time. I'm going to marry you, and what you're going to do in the privacy of your home is going to have my blessing on it because I came up with it. And this sexual relationship inside marriage, everybody say the word, marriage has the blessing of God on it. I didn't want my son to walk around, and any time the term sex or the intimate relationship was mentioned, he either went, <laughs> or who? I wanted him to understand God created it. There is nothing sinful about an intimate sexual relationship inside marriage. Say amen. But there's a whole lot sinful when you're not married. It's not my partner, my friend, my first date, but I may eventually love him or her. The Bible says in Hebrews 13, 4, marriage is honorable in all and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. Preacher, why would you say that in a Baptist church? Because some of you, dear folks, probably don't realize that across the United States of America, there are young uh, college students and unmarried students who will go to a Bible study, and after the Bible study, they go to bed with each other. 
And it's not an incidental thing. It's happening all across this country because somehow they are able to separate their spiritual lives from their physical lives. And I have news for you. It's still called sin. You've got to think right about that. I meet some people, and they're bitter, and they justify it. I was with a friend of mine, pastors of church, about 1,000 people, and he said to me one night, i got a right to be bitter. I said, I can't believe you just said that. i got a right to be bitter. I said, no, sir, you have no rights. They all died at Calvary. You have some responsibilities, but no rights. Well, he began to tell me a story. I said, there's only one person that had a right to be bitter, and his name was Jesus. He's the only one, you listen to me carefully tonight, who never did wrong, but was done wrong. Would you agree? But on the cross, he did not say, Father, damn them all. He said, Father, for they know not what they do. The only person that ever could be justified in being bitter was Jesus Christ. And on that cross, he was not bitter. He came to bless, not to curse. But preacher, you don't understand what they did to me. Yes, but I understand what we did to Jesus. He on that cross bore our sins. How'd you like it if Jesus stayed bitter with you? Ephesians 4.32 says, Forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. If you're sitting here tonight and you're bitter, you're in sin, and there's no justification for it whatsoever. I mean, people who carry the baggage of worry. Now, this is going to shock some of you, but did you know it's just as sinful to worry as it is to curse? I didn't expect a rousing amen. Because what we do is we go, this one and that one. I can judge you for that one, but don't you judge me for this one. This is a little one. Look, folks, sin is sin, and all sin crucified Jesus. Do you understand what I'm saying tonight? When Jesus tells us five times in Matthew chapter 6, take no thought, take no thought, which means stop worrying. When he says in Philippians 4, 6, be careful for nothing, and you decide that you're going to worry anyway, that's sin. It's an affront to God. You're not living in faith. You're living in fear. You add fear to worry, and you have a volatile combination. 2 Timothy 1, 5, God didn't give us the spirit of fear, but of love and of power and of a sound mind. Some of you tonight fear a nuclear holocaust. You fear uh, a, a, a disease that's going to spread across. You fear everything under the sun. Look, you live that way. You are not living in faith. I read some time ago, Brother Bethay, in Reader's Digest, and of course, if you read it in Reader's Digest, you know it's true. And, and, and I read about a guy who married a little lady, and her biggest fear was being burglarized. Now, sir, don't look at your wife right now. Just look right up here, okay? From the first night, according to the story, from the first night, she turned to her husband and said, is the door locked? Are the windows locked? Are you sure we're safe? Every single night for 39 years. Is the door locked? Are the windows locked? Are you sure we're safe? Every single night. According to the story, she woke up about 3 a.m., heard something and said to her husband, there is a burglar in this house. Being the good husband he was, he opened the door on the second floor, looked down the first floor, and sure enough, there was a burglar. He had the HD TV. He was heading for the front door. He saw the man of the house, dropped the TV, and started to run. The man of the house said, hey, man, stand still. My wife's been waiting 39 years to meet you. <laughs> you ever meet people like that? They waste all kinds of time because they're eaten up with everything under the sun. You know, <clears throat> the Bible teaches us when it comes to pure relationships that we're to be pure mentally. 
I've had born-again believers look at me and say, it's okay if I look, if I don't touch. I say, would you like to find that in the Bible? Jesus said in Matthew 5, 28, I say unto you, whosoever looketh upon a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her in his heart already. We are justifying things mentally and verbally that God has condemned, and that's false reasonings. It's error. And when you choose to believe error instead of truth, you are handing bricks to Satan for a stronghold. But there's also not only error, there is ego. If you look down in verse 5, it says, Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself, or self-defiant thing, or self-sufficient thing. When you take error and ego, when you take false reasonings and pride, it's like the concrete that goes in between the bricks and sets them up so that you're heading straight down. James 4, 6 and 1 Peter 5, 5 says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. When Jesus opened his ministry in Matthew chapter 5, here's how he started. Blessed are the poor in spirit. I thought to myself, I've been teaching, preaching a long time. I'm certainly not going to correct the prince of preachers, Jesus Christ. But that's an interesting way to start a ministry. So I began to study. Blessed, we looked at last night. Uh, multiple satisfactions, ultimate living, everything that you've ever wanted are the poor in spirit. So I found out that there's two ways you can understand poor in spirit. One is a person who needs some assistance to do something. Two, a person who can do nothing without assistance. Guess which word Jesus used? The second. Now let's go back to that hillside, and I think I've been in the approximate area where he was. As he sat down as rabbis did, and he looked in front of him, and immediately in front of him were his disciples. And he started his ministries by saying, you guys really want to be happy? Then understand this. You need me. I don't need you. That's a pretty good way to start, isn't it? Kind of puts you in your place. He looks up <laughs> at the unsaved people, and in essence, what he said is, there's not one thing that you have that I need, and there's not one thing you can do that I'm going to accept. You need me. You're desperate without me. He gets the eye of the Pharisees, the religious leaders, who were not only trying to keep the Ten Commandments, what they couldn't, but added 600 more to it. And in essence, as he's looking at them, he's saying, you're putting burdens to bear on these people. You're trying to do all this in your own strength. Nothing you do in your strength counts. You need me. And I thought, wow, what a way to start an earthly ministry. Let's see if you can remember what Jesus said. He said, without me, you can do Take that word apart. No thing can you do without me. The greatest day in your life is when you realize you can't. You can't save yourself. You can't sanctify yourself. You can't control yourself. You're not in charge of yourself. Second greatest day and an even greater day is when you realize he can't. And then you begin to trust him to develop Christ's likeness in your life like you trusted him to save your soul. But there are some people that are too proud to raise their hand in a revival meeting. I don't believe that. There's other people that are too, cra- they're too proud to step out of a seat and kneel in an old-fashioned front of the church. Some people call it the altar. The altar is basically 
in the temple. Today, your heart is God's altar. There, there's some people that are, they, they'd rather their marriage dissolve than call the pastor on the phone and say, my wife and I are in need of help. Could you and your wife uh, make some time to see us? And so pride destroys us. What builds strongholds in your life? Ego and error. Are you listening and filtering everything you see and hear through the book? If you're not, there's the bricks. When God speaks, do you immediately and completely respond? If not, there's the mortar. That's how they're developed. Now, how are they detected? It won't take me but a moment to tell you this. There's two ways you can know if you have a stronghold. One, it's something you do habitually. I don't mean you do it every second or even every day. But let me ask you a question. Do you find yourself angry regularly? Do you find yourself repeatedly bitter? Do you find yourself constantly wanting something you don't have? Do you find yourself with an X-rated mind? Do you find yourself constantly defending yourself? Do you find yourself perpetually defeated and depressed? Do you find something that just keeps coming again and again? And you may have confessed it in your mind a zillion times, but you just can't get victory. It's a stronghold. Second, it's that which you not only do habitually, it's that which you view hopelessly. Have you ever said something like this? I'm always going to be like this. I'll never be any better. This is my burden to bear. This is my thorn in the flesh. I know there are some real strong Christians, but it will never be me. You have a stronghold because God didn't teach you that. God says, greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. Now, as I close my message tonight, Here's what you're going to be tempted to do. You're going to be tempted to rationalize, defend, argue, however you want to put it. And that's exactly what will keep destroying you. Because if indeed you're going to destroy a stronghold, which is what is taught in verse 4 and 5, pulling down and casting down, it is a violent demolition. It means forcibly to destroy. This is not detente. This is not negotiations. And by the way, this is not Ephesians 6. In Ephesians 6, you take the whole armor to stand and having done all to stand. But that's not what this says. You've got to read this passage. In this passage, you are aggressively going after it. You're not going to mess with it. You're going to destroy it. So how do we destroy that which would ultimately destroy us? Number one, admit the stronghold. Listen to me. Admit the stronghold. Proverbs 28, 13 says, He that covereth his sin shall not prosper. But whoso confesses, the word confess means to agree with God. Whoso confesses and forsakes them shall have mercy. Let me show you how you do that. The Holy Spirit of God, on your way to work, sir, you see a risque billboard, some kind of sign, something happens. It triggers a thought. Maybe you look at it a second time. The Holy Spirit of God whispers, out of bounds, sin. You can argue and say, but every man has this problem and you are covering your sin and will not prosper. But when you say sin, guilty as charged, God says forgiven, case dismissed. You say, preacher, you're so simple. That's what he wants to do. That's what he said. If you agree with God, and by the way, let, let me correct some false theology. Have you ever heard these people say, I beg God to forgive me? You ever found that in the Bible? That's not what it says. It says if we confess now, if you want freedom, you've got to do it God's way. 
These people that are Baptist masochists are getting worse, not better. Now, I don't mean you treat it lightly. Oh, that's third time today, feeling good. I'm not talking about that. You should take serious what God says is serious, but you should come and agree, I chose to watch that. I chose to hear that. I chose to say that. There is no excuse. I accept guilt as charged. Here's what happens when you play ball. You foul. The whistle blows. By the way, watch the guys who they storm around, get up to coach's face. Just watch them. How many of them have you ever seen a, a ump or a ref go, oh, excuse me, I am so sorry. Bad call. When was the last time you saw that? Usually, when that starts, the next thing you see is not, you see, could I get an amen tonight? Now, let me simply say, the Holy Spirit of God, when he blows a whistle on you, wants you to admit it. And if you keep arguing with him, he's not going to throw you out of the game. He's going to end the game because there's a sin unto death. And you can argue with him long enough to where you're not going to be in the game. You'll be out of here. Now, the reason I have to say this tonight and explain 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin. Oh, this is a good part of the verse. And cleanse us from, help me, all unrighteousness. Isn't that wonderful? Did you realize if you came back to God in two hours and said, two hours ago, God, I, I, I confess this to you and it just keeps bothering me. And I'm not trying to be sacrilegious, but it would pro he'd probably look down and say, I don't know why it's bothering you. It doesn't bother me because I've removed it as far as the east is from the west. You ought to say amen tonight. I'm giving you a Bible. Now, here's what's done. Because of pop psychology, because of, quote, Christian psychology, I believe personally in biblical counseling. I wouldn't give you 10 cents for a Christian shrink. If that makes you mad, see me in the lobby. We'll go round and round. Just bring your Bible. Because I'm picking up pieces of mess all across Baptist churches. In fact, I got a little message and I'm hollering at the preachers, get the shrinks out of your pulpit. Somebody said, well, I had to go to the couch, try the cross. It works a whole lot better. Well, I'm going to lay there and spit up all my past and vent for the next hour and pay a hundred bucks. Listen, if you'll drop to your knees and admit that you sinned and accept full responsibility, God will heal your mind. He told you he would. Do it. Some of you are not agreeing with me. I'm going on here. The, the only time I park is when I don't get a good response. So I'm going to park here. We, we have all kinds of nonsense that's being taught. Well, my hormones, my society, I have a syndrome. No, you have a sin. It's not spelled S-Y-N-D-R-O-N-E. It's spelled S-I-N. Um. And most of you realize I've been on the board of the wilds for many years and been preaching up there since, or in one form or another, working up there since 1970. I was out jogging one day with a maintenance man. His wife is the chief nurse. He said, hey, Farrell, have you ever heard of ODD? I said, ODD. He said, yeah, uh, uh, my uh, wife got a, a little application that said on it, my son is ODD, and therefore he cannot do the following things. And I said, well, I've met a lot of ODD, odd people. Yeah, I think I understand that. He said, no, 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 no. It stands for Oppositional Defiant Disorder. I said, give me a break. He said, no, go look on it on the Internet. So I did. It, it, it will give you the following symptoms. Bites, curses, stomps, throws temper tantrums. We call that rebellion when I was a kid. 
Oh, boy, we've got people looking down. I'm still going on, brother. They ain't got there yet. Some of you don't realize that if you had had me for a student, you would probably left the teaching field very early. My fifth grade year, I spent more time in the hall than I did in the classroom, and I'm not lying. I knew the principal by first name. We were well acquainted. You, it, it, when you get to heaven, you find Doris Farrell, and she'll verify this. I went to K-4 kindergarten one day, and she had the lady, I don't remember who she was, she had me by the hand like this, and when my mother walked in, she said, take him home and don't bring him back. <laughs> That's a wonderful way to start your education. Had we had all that nonsense, they would have said, the, right, the thing that's wrong with Tom is he has ADD, ADHD, ODD, and all the other DDs. That's not what my dad said. He said, bend over. I can fix everything. That's what's wrong with me. Because dad didn't tolerate that nonsense. He said, son, you're going to learn to be a respectable young man and a respectful young man. And so I taught my three children the same thing. Be respectful, be responsible. Say it with me. Be respectful, be responsible. Say it again. Be respectful, be responsible. My wife and I were in my hometown of Greensboro. And my wife, oh boy, her eyes tell me a lot. I've been watching them for years. And she can tell me with her eyes, I need help. And so I left a counseling situation. I walked over. She said, honey, this is Mr. So-and-so and their six-year-old daughter. And uh, they have something to ask you. And I said, can I help you folks? Our daughter has ODD. I said, oh, really? I said, let my wife take your daughter and play with her because I'd already heard about their daughter. Who, by the way, my wife had no trouble with all week. You have to know how to control children. She'd already raised three. And so she took the little girl off, and I looked at the man, and I said, Now, remember, you wanted to see me. I didn't ask to see you. There's no such thing as ODD. No. I said, Nope. It's one of many, quote, syndromes, complexes, and everything. And I said, If you disagree with me, and I've been in battles with some of the shrinks, and I'll always say the same thing. You believe that? Yes. Take your mind out, put it on the table, and let's diagnose it. What? Take your mind out. I didn't say your brain. Some of my question, they have a brain. Take your mind out, put it on the table, let's die. Well, we can't do that. I said, I know you can't. You can diagnose Alzheimer's. My mother had it. You can see the symptoms of Parkinson's. My father had it. But do you realize, and we got some doctors in this room, you go and see them. If you were to go, you will find every year syndromes increase. And they give them names of stuff that doesn't even exist. So we're going to have to play act here. Pastor, come up and stand right here for just a minute. Um, <clears throat> this is uh, Dr. William Bethay, who is a major chemist at, we won't incriminate the chemical company, we'll call it Smith & Smith. And um, I have an earned PhD in psychiatry. And a lady comes in. And uh, she says to me, I'm having real trouble obeying my husband. And I say, I understand that. You have defiant woman hatred. I'm just making that up. <laughs> I do, yes. And you probably had it for 20 years. Oh, yes, that's how far it goes back. It probably came from your mother and her mother had it, yes. Well, I've got an idea. I'll be right back. And so I go make a call and I say, Dr. Bethay, I have no idea what I just told that lady, but you have a pill, and if you'll send me the pill, 
we will both stay in business for a long time and you just keep the cards and letters coming. And so I go back and hang up the phone. I know exactly what you need to do and I'm going to prescribe this and don't ever expect to get well because you'll have this for the rest of your life. Oh, it's getting quiet in here now. You know, somehow I read in Romans 8, 37, they and all these things we are more than, but we have cope groups. What's your problem? I don't know. I'm going to the cope group. What y'all do? We cope. <laughs> Two and three hours we cope. Preacher, you're making fun. You're jolly well right I am because it's destroying independent Baptist churches across this country. And I'm counseling it constantly. Thanks, preacher. You can be seated. So I said to that family, I looked at the man and I said, now, before we get too far and you get too mad at me, let me ask you, are you the head of your home? Do you walk with God? Do you pray with your wife? Do you properly, dis- I don't mean smack your kid around. And he's still getting his head down. He said, I got a drinking problem. And when I get mad, I curse. And my wife and I's marriage is not good. And so I turned to the lady. And I said, ma'am, do you follow the leadership of your husband? Do you find yourself as a mercy shore submitting and, and supporting him? Do you find yourself patient with your child? She's weeping. She said, we're about to divorce. She said, I live depressed. I said, folks, the little six-year-old does not have the problem. You do. You say, preacher, you're mean. No, I'm not mean because they got help. While everybody else was saying, spit up all your past. Some of you are still not believers. I have a pastor friend of mine whose wife went to one of these lunatics and she came home and told her husband, hang on to this. I was abused by my father when I was a little girl sexually. He said, you know, we've been married 45 years. I've never heard that. She said, I didn't remember it. But he asked me enough questions and I said, that's got to be it. He said, now let me get this straight. You don't remember it. No, but it has to be that. That's from hell. It didn't come from heaven. Now, do we need physicians? You better jolly well believe it. You can pray all you want when your appendix is about to rupture. If I were you, I'd go see a doctor. Dear God, help everything to be okay. Boy, I'm not nuts, folks. But I do believe the scripture is sufficient for our mind and our walk with God. And one of the reasons we're having little revival in churches is because we have every excuse in the world. Instead of David saying in Psalm 32, 38, and 51, he simply said, I I, I was going through a crisis midlife. Wasn't my fault the woman was taking a bath. You don't understand what it's like to get up and stand on your balcony and just have to look. I couldn't help myself. The guys brought her to my house. You say, preacher, don't you preacher me. Either we're going to take the bull by the horns and be honest and respectable to God and understand we are responsible or this society is done. And because judgment against the wicked man is not executed speedily, The unrighteous run wild, and that's why you have so much corruption in this country. Kills three people. Well, he couldn't push the oatmeal off when he was a kid. You can't help it. You can't expect him to do any better. Well, you know what God said? 
If a man sheds man's blood, his blood will be shed. You read that in the Bible? I think they're agreeing. I'll move on. First, you've got to admit the stronghold. If you want to be cleansed, you're going to have to say, Dear God, I'm covetous. Dear God, I lie. Dear God, I'm proud. Dear God, I am absolutely eaten up with immorality in my mind. And if you don't do that, you don't get forgiven. Because God doesn't forgive excuses. He forgives confessed sin. Admit it. Arm against it. Take your Bible really fast tonight and go to the book of Ephesians. We have weapons, not one, but multiple weapons. The first one's found in Ephesians chapter 6. When you start in verse 10, you're strong in the Lord. Verse 11, you put on the whole armor. Now we'll go all the way down to verse 16. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith it you'll be able to quench. Ooh, maybe I've just better pause here and just read what he said. Take the shield of faith. I'm in Ephesians 6, 16. Wherewith you shall be able to quench most of the fiery darts. Don't get legalistic with me tonight, people. I'm going to write a new translation, Brother Dees. An occasional fiery dart. Really, you can, you can whip at least the darts, but the fiery ones aren't going to get by you. You're looking at me like, you realize that's going on? You better take the Bible for what it says. He said, you can quench all the fiery darts of the wicked and take the helmet of salvation, which is the sword of the Spirit, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So the first weapon you have is the Bible, the Word of God. Now, when he uses Word of God, it can be two things. It can be logos, which is the entire Word of God, or it can be rhema. In this passage, R-H-E-M-A is the Word. It means a word from the Word. So let's see how that works. Most of you remember Matthew chapter 4. You remember Satan comes to Jesus who is extremely hungry after 40 days because he's God and man. He says, make these stones into bread, cast yourself off the temple, bow down and worship. Now, Jesus Christ showed us how to do it. He did not quote the Old Testament. He did not quote just Deuteronomy. He did not quote just the Pentateuch. He selected weapons from the weaponry. Make these stones bread. Deuteronomy 6, 3, it's written... Man shall not live by bread alone. Cast yourself off the temple. Deuteronomy 8, 13. Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Bow down and worship. He goes over and over and over and confronts lies with truth. Now, hear me tonight. Satan laughs at your rationalization. And your words, you need to understand this tonight, even if you have a Ph.D., mean nothing to the devil. Nothing. But the Word of God defeats him. And what you read is, after his last confrontation from the Scripture, then Satan leaveth him. Let me be very practical tonight, all right? If indeed you're going to win over whatever stronghold that's been developed, you're going to have to say, Dear God, I admit lying, I admit bitterness, I admit jealousy, I admit covetousness, and then you come against it with the Word of God. When I gave my life to Jesus Christ, unfortunately, I'd run with the wrong crowd, fought my way up through high school, and was a real idiot, if you want to know the truth. And I had filled my mind with corruption, which I wish I had never seen or heard. And so I began to memorize Matthew 5, 28, 2 Timothy 2, 22, 1 Peter 2, 11, Hebrews 13, 4, Proverbs chapter 6, 1 John 2, 15. And just like a six-shooter, when certain thoughts would come... I was quoting scripture. That was the first series of verses I memorized. 
Hundreds and hundreds since then, but that was the first series I memorized. I fought with my fist and also fought with my lips. I had a trigger hair, anger, angry temper. You don't want to back me in a corner. Even today, if I don't walk in the Spirit, I usually have to walk out of the house where things are going on and say to God, I need help real bad. So I had to go back and memorize Psalm 17, 2, Psalm 17, 3, Psalm 19, 14, Psalm 141, 3, James chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. And here's what you're going to find. When those bombardments come and the fiery darts come, it's written, it's written, it's written, it's written, it's written, and you don't lose, you win. But if you don't admit at the stronghold, how in the world would you know where to go in the weaponry? Look at verse 18, because there's another weapon. It says, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. How many of you understand prayer is a weapon? The greatest battles you will ever win are on your knees. Luke 18, 1, he spake a parable to this end, men ought always to pray and not to faint. You know what keeps you from quitting? Living dependent upon God. How many of you in this building have ever fault or ever been a part of the United States military, any branch? Would you raise your hand? First, I want to salute you for serving your country. Second, if you did see conflict, see me afterwards. Nobody ever has because they know I'm telling the truth and tell me if I'm not being accurate with these people. You're a platoon leader. You're number 25. You got 24 guys with you. You have to make two choices. You're at war. You have to make two choices. You can have 23 M16s, two guys short of a, of a rifle, and two forms of communication stay in, in, in contact with headquarters. Or you can have 25 M16s and zero communication. Here's, if you want to say anything about war, it's what you'll choose. I'll take two less white rifles, but we have to have communication. Am I right? Why? Because you may be armed to the teeth with nuclear weapons. But if you don't know where the enemy is coming, you are dead in the water. Ladies and gentlemen, when you jump out of bed in the morning and you grab a biscuit and a bagel and have no time to hit your knees and report to, for duty, you're finished before the day gets started. You know what I do every morning of my life? Every morning. I did this morning. The moment I woke up, I said, Dear Lord, I need you today. I prayed every morning of my life. Dear Lord, I need you today. People say, well, a lady came up to me and she said, Why do you tell God that? He already knows that. I said, Lady, you missed the whole point. I'm not reminding God. I know he knows everything. I'm reminding me. I need God. Say it with me. I need God. You're not very convincing. We're going to try it again. I need God. And when you report for duty, then he allows you to perceive where some of these darts are coming from. So, scripture, prayer, one final uh, weapon. Take your Bible and go way back to the Old Testament. And some of you have never thought about this as a weapon. But in Second Chronicles chapter 20, Second Chronicles chapter 20, I want to talk to you about the weapon of praise. You say, preacher. Yeah, praise is a weapon. I grew up, Brother Buffet, believing that what you did is you fought the battles and you won and then you praised God. And I found out praise is a catalyst that gives you the power to win the battle. Psalm 22 and verse 3, God inhabits the courts of praise. Somebody said, where does God live? I'll tell you. At the corner of Hallelujah Square and Glory Avenue. That's where he lives. By the way, you want to know how to get his attention. See if you can finish this verse. The psalmist said, enter into his gates with and into his courts with. You want to get in touch with God? Enter by, by thanking him and praising him. And when you run into the throne room and don't do that, you're really not even getting a hearing. 
Because the way to get him to respond to you is by giving him glory for who he is, praising him, thanking him, and exalting him. Now, in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, you have the Ammonites and the Moabites coming against the Israelites, and Jehoshaphat is outnumbered, outmanned, outweaponed, and everything else. So, in verse 17... He's been praying, and God says, Ye shall not need fight in this battle, 2 Chronicles 17, 20, uh, 2017, 2017. Set yourselves, stand still, see the salvation of the Lord with you, O Judah. The word means praise. Jerusalem, the word means peace. Fear not, be not dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord will be with you. What does Jehoshaphat do? Bows his head. All Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, verse 18, fell before the Lord. Watch it now. Not, wa- not worrying, nor warring, but worshiping. Keep reading, verse 19, latter phrase. The Korites stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel with a loud voice on high. Go to chapter 20 and verse 21. And when, notice the sequence, he had consulted with the people, he appointed singers unto the Lord. What? Singers that they should praise the beauty of holiness as they went out before the army. That's interesting, isn't it? Singers before the soldiers. To say, praise the Lord, for His mercy endureth forever. Let's see if it worked. Verse 22. And when, notice the order, they began to sing and to praise, the Lord set ambushments against the children of Ammon, Moab, Mount Seir, which were come up against Judah, and they were smitten. If you read the next two verses, you will find out they killed each other. Can you imagine the Israelite choir singing, Amazing grace, how... While the, while the Ammonites and Moabites are killing each other. You say, preacher, that's unique. No, here's what's unique. To get a bunch of born-again believers to really praise God. Now, some of you hadn't bought this yet. So, I want to remind you of Joshua. You know the song, see if you remember this, Joshua at the Battle of Jericho and the... I tricked you, because that's not what the Bible says. That's what the song says. The Bible says the wall. By the way, how many walls does it take to go down before the army goes in? One's enough, okay? Now, most of you probably remember that God called Joshua and said, here's the instructions. I want you to go around the walls of Jericho, which, by the way, were double thick. I want you to go around one time a day for six days and say nothing. Numbers mean something in the Bible. Six is the number of man. After six days, every man came to this conclusion. You know what? We're not getting in there great place to be. On the seventh day, he said, I want you to go seven times around. That's God's number, the number of completion. Now, talk to me tonight, ladies and gentlemen. And after the seventh time around, he wanted the Israelites to what? I heard a good one over here from this young man. I want to hear it from the rest of you. He didn't say, just speak softly. He said, I want you to? It won't hurt you. You didn't pass out, did you? We didn't even have to call 911. Now, where did the word shout come from? Look it up in the original language. It means a jubilant celebration of praise. Now, hang on. Hang on. Some of you are stoic saints. And anybody that hiccups on the half note or breathes too loud, (laughs) just hang on. You'd have had a hard time with the Israelites. The word shout carries the idea of speaking loudly, shouting, exalting, but it's not nonsense. They didn't go around the seventh time and suddenly look up at the Jerichoites and go, ah! They didn't do that. <laughs> There's a lot of that nonsense in churches today too. What did they do? If it's a jubilant celebration of praise, who do you think they were praising? 
Do you know that there are 300 names for God in the Bible? Do you know that? And in the name of God is the nature of God. I dare you to go study 1 Samuel 17. Because there's a name of God there that God so responded to by praise, a 15-year-old teenage boy took the head off of an almost 10-foot giant. Because he looked at Goliath and said, You come to me with sword and shield and spear. And he said, I come to you in the name of <laughs> Jehovah Sabaoth. You know what that name means? The God of all the host of heaven. And God looked down and he said, That 15-year-old kid believes me. These Israelite soldiers over here are having bigger and better uh, conventional, bigger and better ways to kill giants, but I hadn't figured it out yet. But this 15-year-old kid believes me. I'm going to show up on his behalf. Do you know what celebrating, do you know what praise really is? It's verbal faith. That's what it is. It's verbal faith. God honors faith. Faith honors God. So what happens? The wall goes down. And they go, well, preacher, that's Old Testament. How many of you believe Acts 16 is in the New Testament? Can I get an amen for that tonight? You have Paul and Silas. They are in jail. It is midnight. And they're singing. But they're not singing like some Baptists do. They're not singing gloom, despair, and agony on me. Deep, dark depression. I'm a missionary. <laughs> the Bible says at midnight they prayed and sang praises. And when they began to sing and to praise, God... Open the jailhouse. Some of you wonder my background. I was raised on camp meeting preaching. I've been there when God showed up. And I've been there when they just hollered hoping he was. And you understand there's a difference. Some of the preaching was thunder and no rain, but sometimes, brother, there was a storm that moved. And boy, when you're a little boy and God gets to moving, it's something else. There was an old boy years ago who preached from Acts 16, and he entitled the message where Paul and Silas were singing the concert that brought the house down. Amen. The only person that really got scared that night was the jailer. But after getting scared, he got saved. Somebody said, Preacher, Paul didn't give him much gospel. You didn't understand the passage. They'd been singing the gospel for hours. He didn't need any more gospel. He needed to believe. Some of you tonight are in a jail cell of your own making. And you know why? You won't praise God. You've been begging God, begging God, pleading with God, pleading with God, but you won't praise God. Preacher, you sound a little Pentecostal, no Baptocostal. There's a difference. My theology's right, and every now and then I get excited. And some of you say, Preacher, are you sure this works? You're looking at a man years and years ago when I had two little children who could have quit the ministry very easily. I didn't understand this principle. But I began to study the Bible and began to see all these places where people praise God and what God showed up in a famous fashion. I went to my wife and I said, we're here in Alabama. Here's the RV. See this room right here, right out the back window? That's where I'm going. She said, how long are you going to stay? I said, till I get the victory. I had heard every lie Satan had to tell. I, I'm, I'm like most of you guys. I, didn't, I was trying to figure out why in the world God called me to preach. If I was God, I wouldn't have called me to preach. I couldn't even give an old book report when I was a kid. And so I thought, I thought, you made the biggest mistake you've ever made in your life. And I was way in over my head. And so I told my wife, I will be home when I have the victory. And I walked in that room. 
And I took my Bible and I started reading the Word of God. And I'd read a few verses and I'd say, I believe it. And I'd read a few verses and say, I believe it. You say, preacher, you're crazy. Just listen to the story. And then I started singing. Now, most of you have never heard me sing much, but I can send every demon flying when I sing. I can tell you that. <laughs> and then I started quoting a series of verses on the blood of Jesus Christ. And then I said out loud, I said, God, I'm not really good at this. And Satan, just in case you're in this room, I want you to know I'm against you and for God. I want you to know everything you said is a lie and everything God says is the truth. And I went on for hours. I mean to tell you, I had both hands raised. And if you don't like it, tough. Because God said, if you have holy hands, you grace them. And far as I knew, they were holy. And I gave God every ounce of glory I could give him. I sang to him. I called him by name through the scriptures. And over about daylight, man, did I have the victory. I went home, scooted over next to my wife. She said, honey, you know what time it is? I said, yep. She said, are you okay? I said, I'm just fine, baby. But the devil and the demons have got a bad headache. Crawl over and go to sleep. Now, you can laugh all you want. But I counsel almost weekly depressed people. And when I start showing them from the Scripture, you're focusing on you. You're looking at you. Now, let me put a disclaimer. Look, if you are a sick person, you can praise God all you want. But if you actually have a disease, then you need to check with your physician. Because there might be something that's eating on you that's actually physical. I'm not here tonight to say, heal. I'm here tonight to say, listen to the Bible. I got a friend of mine who used to give us annually a condo in the mountains of Tennessee. I called him a few weeks out some years ago and I said, how are you? He said, I'm terrible. And I've been so depressed all my life. I said, what do you want? He told me I could have figured out what it was. And I said, look, don't, don't throw the stuff out. Don't go tell your doctor. Just try this because I know it'll work. He said, what should I do? I said, I know where you live. Take your dog. Walk about 6 o'clock in the morning and just start praying. I don't feel like praying. I said, I didn't ask you what you felt like. That's our problem. I'd like to know how far in the process of a day I get before I do something I like. How many of you really like to get up? Woo! It's morning. How many of you you guys really like to shave? You really like to pull your eyebrows. You really like to shower. You just love changing diapers. I mean, it is morning. Eggs again. I mean, how, how far in the day do you go before you do what you like? Get over that stuff. That's what kids do. I don't like it. Open your mouth. I don't care. Okay, now. Instead of saying I don't like it, just simply say I will do it because it's biblical. I will praise you. I will pray to you. I will honor you. I will exalt you. Okay? I got there six, six weeks later, and he was whistling. I said, you okay? He said, man, I'll tell you what. He said, I know you told me not to do it, but I hadn't been back to see the doctor and threw the pills away. He said, I get out, praise God. He said, I was standing on the top of this mountain looking around saying, why in the world would I be depressed? I live in the mountains of Tennessee. Hallelujah! He said, I've had more fun than a barrel of monkeys. He said, can I help you? I said, yeah, where's my room? Now, don't anybody walk out of here and say, Pharaoh said, don't ever go to a doctor. I go to a doctor once every 25 years. I really do. But I tell, I tell you what we're finding all over this country. A lot of what's going on in your life that's killing you is not what you're eating. It's what's eating on you. You're not going to have the joys of the Lord to your strength when you're bitter. 
You know what bitterness is? It's scab picking. How many of you have ever picked a scab? You're as dumb as I am. When's the last time you picked a scab and it said, oh, I feel so much better. I'm healing now. Did you know God made your body? If you'll keep your cotton picking hands off of it, most of the time it'll heal over, fall off, and most of the time won't leave a scar. But every time you pick it. Some of you are picking a scab about people who are dead. I hate him. Well, I'm sure it really bothers him. Some of you are... You're, you're probably what I'm talking about. Now, the truth of the matter is, ladies and gentlemen, if you'll admit the stronghold and arm against the stronghold and attack the stronghold through the blood of Christ, in the name of Christ, through the power of Christ, depending not on your wisdom, but on the Word of the living God and the Holy Spirit, you won't have to be defeated. You can be dynamic. By the way, for those of you that are not saved, this doesn't work for you. You say, no, no. If I go to an undertaker and I said, could I walk in where the corpse is? And he said, what would you like to do? I said, well, I, I, I work for the NRA and, and I would like to teach him how to shoot a rifle. <laughs> You'd go, uh, we have a place for you. I, I will call the guys. I'm not trying to be unkind to you. But you can try all of this stuff, but until you get saved, it's not going to work. Because you're dead in trespasses and sin. And until you come alive in Christ by faith, you don't have any hope. Step one is stop believing tradition and believe the truth. Step two is stop listening, ladies and gentlemen, to men who have man's wisdom. And listen to God who has eternal wisdom. So I have to ask a question tonight. You have a stronghold? You can stand up tonight and say, he doesn't understand. If he'd had my home, if he'd been raised by my mother, if he had lived in my... Go ahead. And you're going to get worse. God doesn't forgive excuses. Or you can simply say tonight, there is no excuse. I chose to do wrong. I take full responsibility. I admit the stronghold. I'm going to the Word of God arm against it. I am going to praise you in advance that you who knocked down the walls of Jericho and who parted the Red Sea can do the same thing in my life. You will not any longer be a victim. You'll be a victor. Let's stand quietly to pray. How many would say with your heads bowed, there has been a point in time in my life when I quit believing traditions and I believe the truth. I have believed the truth that I am a sinner, that I am damned, doomed, and cursed away from God, but Jesus loves me, died for me, was buried for me, and raised again for me. And I have personally received Christ, not by baptism, confirmation, or communion, but I have personally, by faith, received Jesus Christ, and I have a Bible assurance that I'm going to heaven. If that's true about you, and only if it's true, would you raise your hand tonight? Thank you. You may take it down. Is there someone here tonight who would say, I don't know? I'm not sure, but I know this, I don't want to die in my sin. I say all the time, it's not a crime not to know you're going to heaven, but it's hell not to be saved. It's not really even embarrassing to admit I struggle with this, I don't know. But I'm going to tell you plainly, until you get this matter settled based upon the Word of God, you'll never have victory in any area of your Christian walk. Is there somebody to say tonight, I'm not sure I'm going to heaven, 
I know I don't want to go to hell. Please pray for me. I'm not sure of heaven. I don't want to go to hell. Please pray for me. Would you raise your hand? Anywhere in this building, pray for me. I do not know, but I'd like to know. Anywhere at all. Then let me speak to you as believers. Be careful how you answer this. I don't know, but you do. How many of you could say and then validate by your walk with God? Brother Farrell, I fight sin like anybody else, and we all fight sin, all of us. But to my knowledge, I do not have a stronghold in my life. I don't have something that seems to repeat itself and something that has left me hopeless and something that's left me defeated. I want to give you a loving word of warning. You can raise your hand. I'll go home, never know the difference, but you will because that hand raised in an untrue fashion is not confession. It's complicating your sin and will make you worse than if you'd not even come to the service, so be careful. How many of you could say and prove to my knowledge before holy God, God being my witness, I do not have a stronghold in my life at all? Only if that's true about you as God looks at you. I don't have a stronghold in my life at all. Would you raise your hand to the God who knows? Only if it's true. Thank you. Take it down. I had to look quickly, but if I tripled what I saw, there'd be no more than 20 people. That means tonight, folks, we need to do some business with God. Step one is admit it. Don't make an excuse for it. Don't justify it. Don't rationalize it. Admit it. Well, my dad did the same thing. Your dad's not here, and he won't take up for you, and you won't be able to use that in the judgment seat of Christ. Admit the stronghold. How many of you would say, Preacher, I realize tonight I do have a stronghold, maybe more than one. I'll admit that. I understand that the Word of God and prayer and praise gives me victory. I choose God's remedy. And by the grace of God tonight, I am tired of being defeated. I want to be dynamic. I'm going to attack. I'm going to come against that stronghold. I'm going to cast it down and throw it down. I admit there's a stronghold or more than one in my life. I admit that. I'm going to come against it. Word of God, prayer, and praise. And I'm going to attack it because I want to see victory in Jesus. Please pray for me. God showed me one or more strongholds in my life. I admit it. Please pray for me. If that's you and your heart and you'll be that honest, would you raise your hand all over the building tonight? Hold it up all over the building. Thank God for you.